Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode is going to be a little different from the previous ones. In this episode, I'm going to address reader questions related to helping an older parent. These are questions that were emailed to me earlier this month by people who are subscribed to get email updates from the Better Health While Aging website, because earlier this month, I sent out a message inviting people to submit questions for me to answer on the podcast. And I heard back from several people. I got lots of questions related to health and aging, and that was wonderful. And today I'm going to address the subset of questions that were from adult children helping older parents. For the other questions about aging health or other aspects of aging, I'll be addressing those in a future episode. Now, before I go into the questions, please note that my suggestions in response to these questions are meant to provide information and education only. It's really not possible to provide medical care uh, over the internet or over a podcast. So uh, this is not medical advice of the type that you would be getting during an in-person visit. The goal here instead is to use your real life questions to provide helpful information on how we in geriatrics often think about these problems and on how you might approach certain late life health problems. So let's get on to the questions. So question, with my father's dementia, we have been working hard to try to find a facility to accommodate him. We've now realized that there are gradations of care facilities. How are they classified? Also, they use this terminology that is Greek to us. Dad is now what is termed a quote-unquote two-person assist, almost to quote total care, close quote. Is there some place that defines what these terms mean? I feel like I never know what they're talking about, so I can't quite locate the correct facility for him. Okay, so uh, this is something that comes up quite a lot. Now, the challenge with answering questions is that people... Um, there are always things that I don't quite know, but since the person mentions dementia and um, total care, it sounds like it's somebody who certainly has lots of needs when it comes to activities of daily living and somebody who's not able probably to walk or get up by himself, who actually requires two people, is what they said. And it's not clear from the question whether that's because her father has advanced to really the later stages of dementia, because uh, a dementia such as Alzheimer's just by itself over time will cause people to lose the ability to walk and get around. Or it might be that her father has other medical problems that have left him uh, unable to get around on his own. So how to find the right facility. The main thing to keep in mind is that uh, roughly speaking, there are assisted living facilities, and then there are nursing homes. And Nursing homes, which are technically called skilled nursing facilities, offer a higher level of care and they are regulated at the federal level. Whereas other kinds of group housing arrangements or housing that provides care to older adults are not federally regulated, they're regulated at the state level. And because those uh, facilities, which I'm referring to as assisted living, but here in California, they're called 
residential care facilities for the elderly. Because those are regulated at the state level, different states have different uh, criteria for how they define them and for how they're regulated. So this person didn't say what uh, state she was in, but, but what I will say is that generally in assisted living, they use the level of care that somebody needs to, first of all, decide whether they can accept the person based on the, the um, sort of staffing needs and also to uh, determine what the cost of care will be. And when people need a very high level of care, which this, this father with dementia sounds like he does, it may not be possible for an assisted living facility to provide that level of care. So uh, what I would recommend she does is actually use uh, something called the Elder Care Locator. You can find it online at www.eldercare.gov. And in it, you can place the location where you are, where you're looking, and it will show you, it will help you find your local area agency on aging. And it will also help you find other sources of information for aging services. And using that, she can find her local area agency on aging, and then she can ask them for some advice on where she can learn more about licensing requirements for assisted living facilities in her father's area. And that way she'll be able to find out whether assisted living is an option or whether they're going to look at skilled nursing facilities. I took a quick look online for myself and was not able to find anything clarifying whether nursing homes have a sort of standardized uh, definition for levels of care. And um, nursing homes do have skilled medical personnel, and often they're able to handle things that are much more complicated than someone who is in later stages of dementia and might need a lot of custodial care. Nursing homes, some may offer support for uh, ventilators, IV medications, and so I don't know that the terms two-person assists or total care are defined at the federal nursing home level, but um, generally for families, one wants to find the best, most comfortable place to live given the older person's needs. And here in California, I've seen people who, you know, are uh, very dependent and can't get up by themselves. Some of them with dementia are living in certain types of assisted living facilities that have uh, a pretty comprehensive memory care unit. Some of them are living in smaller congregate housing. Here in California, we have something called a board and care that often might have four to six residents and is a smaller facility. And I've seen some people like that living there. And then of course, people may uh, be living in um, an actual nursing home, one that has long-term beds. So hopefully that information will be helpful to the, the person who wrote the question and I wish her good luck. Next question. My mother has bipolar one. She's a fun, loving, warm person and a good mother. I can tell when she's beginning a manic phase. How do I take care of her without upsetting her more? I struggle with this because she's 67 and still very independent, but I worry about her driving or doing something else where she could get hurt. I recognize this is not an easy question. So this is a tough situation because on top of the usual challenges that people have related to helping a parent without upsetting them or impinging on their sense of autonomy, we also have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, which is a pretty important mental health diagnosis. And one of the things uh, to know about bipolar disorder is that there's actually a version of it specific for older people. In the medical literature, it's referred to as geriatric bipolar, but... Um, 
the definition uh, usually starts with people who are at least 60. Sometimes they'll even put it at 55. And that includes people who were diagnosed with bipolar when they were younger, uh, which is the case for most people, and have just grown older with it and now have it along with other chronic conditions related to aging. And then there's a smaller subset who were actually diagnosed um, or developed the condition later in life. So it's important to realize that bipolar disorder is like many other chronic conditions, which is that there is a geriatric approach and that the care for the bipolar disorder at some point should be modified to take into account the fact that the person's older and certain complications or issues that come up more for older adults. So in the case of bipolar, um, in older adults, one of the things that we know is that it becomes fairly common for people with geriatric bipolar to have cognitive impairments. So it's important to keep that in mind as a possibility that beyond the changes in thinking that are just associated with the bipolar, the person may also have some real impairments in their ability to pay attention or their memory or their executive function. And also research has shown that people with uh, older adults with bipolar tend to develop a dementia earlier in life. So the, the person who asked the question should be aware of that. Now, what can she actually do? To help answer this question, I got some input from Carolyn Rosenblatt, who is an elder care attorney and the author of The Family Guide to Aging Parents. She does a lot of mediation with families and with adult children who are struggling to help older parents and has had some experience with people who have bipolar disorder. And she pointed out that one important way to help care for an older parent with bipolar disorder is to help the person stay on their medication. Most people diagnosed with bipolar disorder do need to take medication indefinitely, but often when people are feeling good or like their mental health is stable, they stop taking the medication. Also, we know that older adults with no particular history of mental illness often stop their medications, sometimes because of cost or sometimes because of difficulty getting to the pharmacy, or there can really be any number of reasons. So one specific thing that this person um, can do is help her mom keep taking the medications. Carolyn Rosenblatt also noted that the best protection an adult child can have for the parent at risk is a durable power of attorney to use to control finances in the event that the parent spins off in a manic phase and starts wrecking finances. And that's an easy tool to get. And Carolyn says that the best time to do this is when the mom is feeling good and trusting of her adult child. Now, in terms of driving or concerns that somebody is going into a manic phase, Carolyn notes that one can't keep a mentally ill person from driving unless the police or an accident get into the picture. That's true. However, most states have criteria under which family or medical professionals can intervene if a person with mental illness seems to be really out of control and at serious risk of self-harm. So a couple things that I would suggest to this person with the mother with bipolar disorder is, uh, first of all, to reach out to get education and support from others who have experience with this condition. It would be especially helpful if she could reach out to her mother's psychiatrist. She could ask her mother for permission for the psychiatrist to divulge things. But even if her mother doesn't want to get permission, she should still be able to contact the psychiatrist, express her concerns, and also ask the psychiatrist for a little information guidance on what she should do if she's ever worried that her mother is spinning into a manic phase and may be at risk of harming herself or at excess risk from driving. 
She can also look for support groups. There are support groups for uh, related to mental illness, and some of them focus on families. It would be especially helpful if she could find a group of people like her, adult children of an older person with bipolar or another serious mental illness. And that group should be able to provide some guidance on what to do if she's ever particularly concerned that her mother is spinning out of control with a manic phase. Otherwise, I would say once again, it's important to know that older adults with bipolar are at a higher risk of developing cognitive impairment and may develop dementia earlier than others. Many states have laws related to reporting people who may have dementia or be cognitively impaired and are driving. So she should learn more about what the options are in her state if she's very worried about uh, the driving, which can be dangerous to the older person and to the public. And then I would especially encourage her to think about planning ahead for future cognitive disability. Her mother may not have dementia or cognitive impairment at this time, but she should expect that it's something that's going to come up in the future. And now is the time to plan for it. Um, She should pick a time when her mother, again, is feeling relatively well. And so getting that durable power of attorney for finances, getting it for healthcare, and just planning ahead and having those conversations that are often uncomfortable and difficult about, you know, what will we do if your memory and thinking gets worse, which it's likely to do at some point in the future. So I would encourage her to, uh, to do that. And in the show notes, um, I'll post a link to the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance because they have a nice page about helping an older relative. Next question. I take care of my dad. He's 82 and has mid-stage Alzheimer's. I love him, but he can be so cruel. It's hard to tell when it's sundowning or he's just being mean. Either way, it still hurts. Can you share some strategies on how to handle dementia agitation? How can I break the cycle of agitated questions and remarks, both for me and my sanity and for his comfort? I've tried to tell him, I love you, you are safe, don't worry, but that doesn't seem to get through. So this is another common situation that is really difficult, and my heart goes out to um, this family caregiver and really all of you who are struggling to help an older parent, especially when dementia or cognitive impairment is involved. So to get through this, there are some known dementia behavior management strategies that she can try, and I'm going to share a few in a moment. But before I do, I want to emphasize that it's also really important to learn and practice approaches that help you as an adult child or family caregiver maintain your own emotional well-being, both in the moment when a parent with dementia is saying or doing something that leaves one hurt or frustrated, and for kind of longer-term emotional well-being and resilience. And I bring this up because my experience has been that families and family caregivers often just don't find time to do this. And it's because they're busy and overwhelmed and they're so busy with their jobs and with taking care of the person that they don't take care of themselves. And when I say that, I don't mean just taking a little time off for yourself of quiet time, but you know, really, again, working on um, strategies and approaches that really help bolster your emotional well-being and resilience. So I want to make a pitch for that before I go into the dementia behavior management strategies. And um, to learn some of these, I recommend connecting with a support group in person or online. There are local chapters of the Alzheimer's Association uh, throughout the country. There are regional chapters, and sometimes there are local ones in cities. So I would recommend contacting the Alzheimer's Association for uh, help finding a support group or the local area agency on aging, which again, you can find through eldercare.gov. 
can help refer you to um, support groups and resources if you are caring for a parent with dementia. Also, for managing emotions, recent research has confirmed that mindfulness meditation helps family caregivers. And although any pleasant and relaxing activity is helpful to a caregiver, mindfulness seems to be particularly useful because it helps people get better at accepting difficult situations and emotions. And that's a huge part of the challenge in caring for a parent with Alzheimer's or another dementia. In fact, a clinical study published in 2013 randomly assigned dementia caregivers to mindfulness-based stress reduction program or a dementia education and support program. And they found that although both approaches reduced caregiver anxiety and improved the mental health of the family caregiver, the mindfulness program was more effective at reducing stress and reducing depression. Now, of course, the ideal is to both get some help in developing a mindfulness practice and also still pursue the dementia education and support because both of those are helpful in different ways. Dementia education is often really helpful in teaching people specific strategies to deal with common situations that arise. So for tips on managing sundowning, I asked my colleague, Mary Hulme, who is a social worker with really extensive experience helping families with dementia issues. And you can learn more about her online at moonstonegeriatric.com. She suggested that this family caregiver try things like turning off distractions, such as the TV or radio, quieting the surroundings. And if the father is very agitated, asking him what is happening in a slow and calm voice a few times. She also recommended the resources online at Family Caregiver Alliance, which is a wonderful website and organization for family caregivers. You can find them at caregiver.org, and they have a really nice page on managing dementia behaviors, which I will link to in the show notes. Last but not least, for family caregivers uh, struggling to cope with Alzheimer's and another dementia, I want to uh, recommend the Care to Plan tool, which we heard about in a previous podcast episode, was developed by Professor Joseph Gogler, a dementia expert at the University of Minnesota, and I'll post a link to that as well. So hopefully that'll be helpful for that difficult situation. Next question. Mother is 91 years of age, admitted to a hospital after a bad fall. She's had difficulty sleeping and has been very delirious. Morphine did not have any effect. She was put on haloperidol, small dosage for four days, and now stopped. Are withdrawal symptoms lasting or to worry about for her long term? So this person is describing a really common situation that comes up when an older person falls and is hospitalized. Specifically, the person is describing delirium, which is a state of worse than usual mental confusion that is brought on by some type of unusual stress on the body or mind. So uh, it's very common when people of this age in their 90s are hospitalized, although it's actually common in all older adults who are hospitalized. Studies have estimated that between a third uh, to a half of adults over age 65 experience at least some delirium when they're hospitalized. And that might be because of the illness that brought them to the hospital. That might be because of pain related to a fall. Um, there's often anesthesia related to a surgery that can bring it on. And they also think that in many cases, just the stress of being in a hospital, you don't sleep very well, things are very unfamiliar, people often don't have their glasses or hearing aids, that that also can provoke some of the stress that brings on delirium. And I should also not forget that uh, medications, certain medications can make people's confusion worse. And um, it's fairly common for older adults to be given some of those medications when they're in the hospital. 
So I have a, um, an article on the website about delirium. I recommend that all family caregivers of older parents and older adults learn about delirium because it really comes up quite a lot. And I found that family caregivers often are quite confused as to uh, what it is and what it means. And I want you to know about it because one of the many complicated things about delirium is it's often missed by hospital staff who are busy, who may not realize that an older person is more confused than usual. And in some cases, up to 40% of the time, the delirium can actually make people quieter and more spaced out than usual. So family caregivers can just play a really important role in recognizing delirium in the hospital and bringing it to the attention of um, the clinical staff. And so that's one reason to know about it. But in this case, the family uh, either knew or was told that their mother was delirious. And the question is Haldol and whether you can have withdrawal. So the right way to manage delirium once it's noticed in the hospital is to do a workup trying to identify the underlying triggers. It could be untreated pain. It could be medication side effect. It could be constipation. It could be um, a urinary tract infection, which people can get sometimes in the hospital. So the right approach is to try to identify all the underlying triggers or exacerbators try to treat them or remove them, and otherwise provide supportive care. And if we've done all those things and the person is still very restless and distressed or at risk of hurting themselves, only at that point are you supposed to resort to using a medication. And of the medications, Haldol or another antipsychotic is considered the best choice. It's considered a better choice than a different type of medication, which is sometimes used but is not recommended for this situation at all, which are benzodiazepines. So that means sedative tranquilizers like Ativan or Valium. So the care that this person is describing in the hospital does sound like it's in line with um, the guidelines for managing delirium, assuming that, that the mother did get a decent evaluation for underlying triggers and that they also tried all the non-drug approaches to providing supportive care and reassurance to somebody who's delirious. When we treat with a low-dose antipsychotic like this, you are just supposed to do it for the minimum number of times. So four days also doesn't sound unreasonable. And then in terms of withdrawal, as far as I know, one doesn't expect withdrawal from Haldol after a few days like this for treatment of delirium. Now, delirium often takes weeks or months or sometimes even a year to fully resolve. Usually people aren't agitated and restless for months, but they might be more confused than they usually are. And a certain number of people who become delirious actually had uh, underlying dementia. Sometimes it wasn't quite recognized um, as such. And so sometimes an episode of delirium can unmask their dementia. So if this person's concerned about withdrawal, I think what's more likely to be happening is that the older mother is perhaps still having some residual delirium or confusion from her episode of delirium. So I, I wouldn't worry so much about withdrawal symptoms, but I would just point out that it often takes a long time for the person's brain to fully recover. A certain number of people never recover to the way they were before. And we do know that in um, some cases, the older person had a little bit of underlying early dementia that sort of gets uncovered by the episode of delirium. And so then they might be more restless and agitated, and it's partly just the confusion and difficulty processing that might be associated with the, their underlying brain condition 
which is now being made worse by the episode of delirium. And it can take a long time for that delirium to, um, to resolve or for them to get back to whatever is going to be their best possible mental state. Moving on to the next question. My father has Parkinson's and my mother has Alzheimer's. They live together in an assisted living facility, but I'm fairly certain that we'll need to move them to full care soon. Until that time, I do what I can with the help of assisted living aides to keep their daily routine as normal as possible, but I'm losing ground as their diseases progress. My dad continues to crave a good night's sleep. We've tried everything recommended naturally as well as with prescriptions, but nothing seems to help. I'm beginning to understand there's nothing really that can be done because that's the disease. Is there anything you would recommend or suggestions as to how I can assist without losing hope myself? I'm fortunate that they move closer to me and with the support of my husband and friends, I'm able to keep my personal life separate from theirs. I just need it to vent. So this question, again, encapsulates a lot of the challenges that adult children face, especially when they're involved in overseeing the care of older parents who are declining due to a slow, incurable disease such as Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. And this person is kind of struggling to juggle three things. One is making sure that the parents are getting optimal care for their chronic conditions and any associated difficult symptoms. Then there are the difficult emotions that come with these illnesses that slowly change the people we love. And then there's finding a way to take care of yourself and not letting all the work or emotions overwhelm you too much. So in doing my work both directly with patients and in counseling families, I find myself just coming again and again and again to uh, what's often known as the serenity prayer. That's that prayer that goes, please grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And the reason why I think of this and the challenge in, um, in this and in doing this work that we do to, to help older adults with their health and well-being is that especially when an older adult has reached a certain stage of medical complexity and decline in their abilities, um, all three of those items in the serenity prayer become really, really difficult. So for instance, even if we're together able to provide the very best optimal care for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, there'll be decline and often difficult symptoms, and it's hard to accept these changes. Now, there often are things that we can change or do differently to optimize a person's health and well-being, and that's a part of the benefit of tapping into the geriatric knowledge base is to make sure that you're accessing all those uh, approaches. But it can be hard to find out what are those things unless you're able to work directly with a geriatrician. And it can be hard to implement them, especially in facilities or in situations where a lot of other people are involved. And then it's often tough to know what kind of problem, like the sleeping difficulties that she mentioned, are improvable. And often the only way to find out if you're a family member, is to do some work researching the issue or to find a clinician or other expert to advise you and then to try it. And so her father's having difficulty with sleep with Parkinson's. There are things that can be tried. And to know whether her father's doctors have tried them, she would have to research them a little bit, carefully look over the care he's gotten, ask a lot of questions, consider a second opinion. And then even if she finds all the sort of best known things to try and tries them, they may improve and they may not because that's just um, the nature of what we find with these approaches. And it can be dispiriting to put a lot of time and effort into researching and trying to, to improve a symptom and to find that in the end it doesn't help because maybe it was just one of those situations where even when all the 
best known things were tried, it didn't work because in most cases, there's nothing that works 100% of the time for everything. So what she can do to get through this situation. I think there are a couple of things that are important for family caregivers in this situation to do. Uh, One is, again, to invest in activities that will help you cope with your caregiving stress and with the emotional challenges of this journey. So again, developing some kind of a mindfulness practice, I think just pays huge dividends in coping with caregiving stressors and is really good for one's health in a lot of ways and can, you know, can help for the rest of one's life. So, so I encourage people to consider that. And then there are other basic self-care approaches that help one cope with caregiving stress, like getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, avoiding isolation. Sometimes people become isolated from the rest of their friends and family because they're so caught up in the caregiving or they feel like they don't want to burden their friends by talking about the caregiving. And that's part of why um, a caregiver support group can be a really good option for people. So um, those are some approaches to sort of cope with the caregiving stress. There's another branch of caregiving skills, which is to, to the extent possible, cultivate one's skills as a medical and well-being advocate. So it pains me to say this, but right now, older adults with Alzheimer's and sometimes with Parkinson's, certainly in assisted living facilities, often are getting suboptimal medical care. And it takes a lot of work and advocacy and effort from their family members and care circle to improve that medical care. So you can learn to cultivate uh, those skills. It means learning things like how to research health problems, how to bring up potential approaches to the clinical partners, how to sort of assess what the current doctors are doing or how to get a second opinion and so forth. So support groups, again, can help with this. And then there are some sites online, and I'll link to one of them in the show notes, that help people learn kind of proactive patient strategies. And when you're the family caregiver overseeing an older person's care, a lot of those strategies you can learn as well. So I'll I'll share some links that, that have some resources for people who want to do that. And it is a way, it often does, can improve the healthcare of an older person, which can improve their well-being and quality of life. But, you know, it's work, unfortunately. And then the third thing to do is to definitely set some healthy limits on one's caregiving efforts and just accept that you probably can't do everything that you hypothetically could for your parents. We each have 24 hours in the day. Most people have work. They may be caring for younger children. They have other obligations. And so I always encourage people to be careful about letting the caregiving of older parents swallow up too, too much. Nobody can tell another person how much is too much or too little. But for most people, you won't be able to do everything, everything that you could. And we all have to find ways to come to to terms with that and accept that. I always encourage family caregivers to recruit help to the extent they can, either by tapping into financial resources, if they have any, by uh, recruiting friends and other family members to help to the extent that's possible. Because uh, putting in too much of yourself and burning out, one wants to be very careful about that. And uh, lastly, a word about losing hope. I would say there's always hope, but we just sometimes have to change what we're hoping for. And the talking to other people, especially if they're trained in supporting family caregivers, can help us realize that. No matter what the situation, there's always something positive and good and feasible that we can hope for when it comes to um, the health and well-being of an older person who's declining. 
So I, th- I think this often feels like small comfort to the family caregiver who's overwhelmed and feels that they're drowning in stress or grief or are overwhelmed by their parents' um, unhappiness or frustration because I think that's one of the things that's often very hard is seeing people we love that we can't make everything right for them. But again, support groups and activities like mindfulness can help uh, family caregivers feel a little more accepting of the situation and of one's own limits in what we can do. And I think that has a profound effect on, on a person's well-being when they're in a family caregiving role and can even sometimes help the older person too. So to help cope with the stress and demands of caregiving, I recommend a course or some kind of structure because otherwise it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the self-care recommendations that you'll find online. So um, for instance, Professor Joseph Gogler, who was our guest on the podcast um, previously, uh, he recommends a course called Powerful Tools for Caregivers, and you can learn more about it online at www.powerfultoolsforcaregivers.org. So I'll post a link to that site and a few other resources in the show notes. Next question. We have a very difficult time getting my mother to take her medicine and agree to recommended procedures such as cataract surgery and fine needle aspiration of the thyroid gland. What strategies can we use to help her understand the importance of these things? Thank you. So this is another thing that comes up a lot. It's family caregivers trying to figure out how to make a parent understand something because an older parent isn't, isn't doing what their adult children think should be done or would like them to do when it comes to their health or well-being or sometimes their living situation. And um, since it comes up a lot, I, I wrote an article about this last year for nextavenue.org. It's called Four Things to Do When Your Parents Are Resisting Help. So I'll just summarize my four tips here. And then if this is your situation, I would encourage you to take a look and then you can post any follow-up questions in the comments section on the website. Uh, the four things I recommend people do. I always start by suggesting they consider the possibility of cognitive impairment. That's in part because in my own line of work, often when there's been this frustration with my parents not doing what we think they should and they won't understand uh, often, not always, but often when we look into it, there is actually some cognitive impairment that is playing a role in that. And it's really important to be aware of that for a few reasons. Uh, One is depending on the nature of the problem with memory and thinking and how severe it is, it's possible that it could be improved. So sometimes people's thinking is worse um, due to an undiagnosed or not properly treated other medical problem like thyroid illness actually, or depression or a few others. So, so it's important to make note of that kind of improvement and ask, well, is there anything that could be done to help the person think better? And then if a person has kind of improvement, they may not have the mental capacity to make certain medical decisions or understand things and respond to logical arguments in the way that they did before. And this doesn't mean that you can take over and make them do things that they don't want to do, but I just think it's important to be aware of it and consider it if there really is evidence that your parent cannot exercise their mental faculties the way they used to. So especially if you suspect cognitive impairment or dementia, then family caregivers need to think about accepting that older person's reality better in order to better understand what that person is experiencing. And that can help sort of either point the way towards a a way to help them do something that you think does help the older person meet their goals. And there are some approaches that that we can use to um, ethically 
encourage people who are cognitively impaired to do things that we think are in their best interests, or especially that we think help meet the goals that the person themselves articulate as important to them. So for more on that, you can, you can look at the article. Uh, the next thing that I recommend is make sure you've heard and validated your parents' emotions. This is important whether or not um, you think your parent has cognitive impairment. I mean, even when people are mentally intact, you may have noticed over life that people often don't respond to logical arguments because often people's choices or decisions are grounded in certain emotions. And so it often helps to back off trying to convince people and instead really be curious and explore, tell me more about this, tell me what's, you know, how you feel about it, what your fears are, your concerns, and, and try to understand rather than trying to push on, trying to convince them to, to do something that, that we think might be better. Uh, it's also important to review the person's goals and what trade-offs they might will, be willing to make. And Atul Gawande, in his uh, best-selling book, Being Mortal, really explores this in a wonderful way, how there's often a trade-off between safety and autonomy. And adult children are often extremely preoccupied with safety, not just physical safety in the home, but kind of medical safety with, you know, testing for everything or checking for things. And that may or may not be the older person's priority. And it's just important to keep that in mind. And often when we start by exploring what's most important to the older person, it's important to know this because later if we frame our recommendations for health or otherwise as a way to help the older person achieve that goal that they said was most important, which might be to continue living in their own home or to not spend too much time in the hospital, um, often by, by framing our recommendations as a way to help them reach goals that they said were important, we can be more successful in the communication and in coming up with, uh, with a plan. And then last but not least, it's important as family caregivers or as the, the children or relatives of somebody we care about, it's important to distinguish what we need from what our parents need. And I think we all do this throughout life in relationships with those we're close to as we kind of conflate what we need with what they need. And so we, we say, well, you know, they need to be safe. And the truth is like, we need or we want them to be safe. And it may or may not be what they need or want. And so once uh, we can distinguish a little bit, then we can ask ourselves, well, our own needs or your needs as a family caregivers and desires, they're certainly important, but when you identify them as, well, these are, these are mine, uh, not quite my parents, then you can sort of think of other ways to address your needs that, that maybe don't involve pushing your parent to do something that they may or may not want to do. So none of these are silver bullets. People often still end up in um, difficult situations uh, wanting their parent to, to do something, but hopefully those four um, suggestions will be helpful to the person who wrote the question. So just to bring it back to the specific questions that the person had asked, um, helping his mother understand the importance of cataract surgery or a procedure um, for her thyroid gland, again, is there a possibility that she has a problem with her memory or thinking? Have you learned more about how she feels about it? So what does she say when she's asked about cataract surgery? Does she say she feels it's not necessary? Does she say she's afraid she'll have a complication? Does she say she knows somebody who had it and there was a bad outcome? Is it that she doesn't like doctors, doesn't trust doctors? So 
understanding a little bit more those emotions and not trying to talk people out of it, but just understanding them so that you can later work around them. And then her goals, what does she say is most important when it comes to her vision or maybe just her overall life? So again, if it's important to live at home independently, then sometimes framing cataract surgery as something that's really valuable and will help people continue to remain in the home can um, be helpful. And then you may need or want her to have the best possible vision or to make sure she gets this thyroid. It was a fine needle aspiration. So that's kind of like a biopsy of the thyroid to make sure she perhaps doesn't have uh, a tumor or something dangerous. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe the adult child wants that reassurance and certainty, whereas the parent prefers to just wait and see and has the attitude of what will happen will happen. I don't know. I'm hypothesizing here, but those are some examples of how using those four tips might play out for that particular situation. Um, because uh, in order to help other people understand things, uh, we need to first understand them and how they're thinking about it and what's important to them. And again, cultivating your ability to accept situations that are difficult and emotions that are difficult uh, will pay off. Next question. I'm concerned about being a caregiver myself because both my mother and I are suffering from mild cognitive impairment. I was wondering what suggestions you have for us. I'm 57 and my mother is 90. So, so I'm going to start just by reviewing what is mild cognitive impairment because people aren't always familiar with the term or might have some misconceptions about it. So mild cognitive impairment basically means cognitive impairment, so changes to memory or other thinking skills that are more than we'd expect with normal aging, because normal aging does cause um, a little bit of decrease in certain mental abilities. So mild cognitive impairment would be more than we'd expect with normal aging, but not severe enough to cause substantial problems in how the person's able to live their life and do their, uh, their regular tasks. So in other words, this is cognitive impairment that you can see on a test, but isn't substantial enough to meet the criteria for dementia. And mild cognitive impairment was, is now also called mild neurocognitive disorder. That's a term that was published in 2013 in the update of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is used for uh, defining diseases and problems with the brain. So now mild cognitive impairment is uh, mild neurocognitive disorder, and dementia has technically been renamed major neurocognitive disorder. So, and it's a quite common condition, especially as people get older. So the issue with mild cognitive impairment is that in a fair number of people, it eventually gets worse and they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's or another dementia. However, there are, um, the mild cognitive impairment is, you know, it's sort of a, uh, it's a constellation of symptoms, but it doesn't tell you what's the underlying problem causing it. And that may be the very earliest stages of a neurodegenerative condition such as Alzheimer's, but it might be something else. And um, so what studies have found is that in 11 to 40% of people, um, the mild cognitive impairment gets better and people may even just go back to being normal. And that's definitely more likely to happen to younger people than it is to older adults. So, so for the person who wrote in and said he's in his late 50s and he has mild cognitive impairment and his mother has it as well, here's what I would suggest. I would encourage him to really consider making a priority of taking care of his own mild cognitive impairment. Um, so that means making sure he's had a good evaluation for underlying causes and trying to correct anything treatable. And then it means living a life that's conducive to good brain health. 
Uh, I have an article on the website about promoting uh, brain health and emotional health, which I'll link to in the show notes. But there are a number of proven strategies that help um, both maintain brain health and help people no matter what their diagnosis or brain condition is, it helps them have the best possible brain function. These are things like getting enough sleep, exercising, avoiding excess stress, avoiding medications that dampen brain function, and so on and so forth. So I would encourage him to do those things. And then in terms of his mom, he needs to work uh, with her and with the rest of the care circle to work out a care plan that doesn't put excess demands on him. And that's because the stress and burden of caregiving could easily make his, I think it could make his mod kind of impairment worse. So he needs to kind of balance a little bit what his mom needs with what he needs for his own health. And that's tough to do. There's no exact right way to do it, but I just want to encourage him to think about that. And then in terms of um, the older mother's mild kind of impairment, she can also pursue those lifestyle activities and behaviors that are known to be to help people optimize their brain health. Or if she's in a facility or getting help from others, they should help her do those things. So again, you know, exercising, getting enough sleep, meaningful social activity and purposeful activities. These are all things that are shown to help maintain cognitive health. And then lastly, both this uh, adult child and his older mother, to the extent she can, should plan ahead and anticipate that she might decline further and need more assistance either due to cognitive problems or due to like other health problems because when you're in your 90s you could have other health problems that cause you to have limitations with your your physical abilities or mental abilities and so they should plan ahead and figure out a plan for for how they'll meet her care needs and i would encourage them to do it sooner rather than later you don't want to wait until there's a crisis especially if you as the adult child already have your own chronic health conditions or brain health to worry about. Planning ahead is always much, much better. So um, I would encourage them to do that. And a nice resource that I have recently come across is called Long-Term Care Planning for Dummies by Carol Levine, who's a really experienced, well-known expert on family caregiving. So that would be one resource that they could use for that. Otherwise, to learn more about mild kind of impairment, and how it should be evaluated, how it can be evaluated and treated. The Alzheimer's Association has some good information, and also the Mayo Clinic has some as well. Next question. My mother is 84 and has mild to medium dementia. She has complained of a pressure in her abdomen and shortness of breath. I took her to the emergency room. There were no issues with her heart or stomach found. Her cholesterol, BP, and blood sugar levels are all normal. I took her as they recommended to a gastroenterologist and cardiologist. Her heart is fine. She had a barium enema and her colon is fine. I feel it's anxiety because when she takes Ativan, she feels better. She also has terrible bad breath, but the doctor says the only thing that may cause that is acid reflux. So she's taking an antacid. I don't know what else to do. She had expressed while still well mentally that she doesn't want extensive or uncomfortable tests. Could her anxiety be causing these symptoms? So the brief answer is yes, anxiety can definitely cause abdominal discomfort and shortness of breath. Now, you always want to evaluate for other medical causes, because especially as people get older, there are many problems related to the stomach, the heart, the lungs that can cause the symptoms that this family caregiver is describing. But it sounds like she's had probably a good first pass evaluation for physical health causes for the symptoms, and she'd previously expressed a preference to not be extensively tested. That's wonderful that they got around to doing that advanced planning ahead of time. So, so it sounds reasonable to, to think that, that uh, the issue is anxiety. Now, 
It's good that Ativan, the generic name is lorazepam, it's good that Ativan is helping with the symptoms, but as you may know, that's a benzodiazepine tranquilizer drug that's been associated with a number of short-term and long-term harmful side effects that are problematic for older adults. That's a drug that is definitely on the beers list of medications that older adults should avoid or use with caution, and I've mentioned it a few times on my website as um, a problem. So in the short term, it worsens balance and increases fall risk, and then it can also dampen thinking. Um, Although in people who are very anxious, being anxious itself uh, worsens thinking and cognitive abilities. So sometimes, especially for people with very mild dementia, I've found that it kind of seems to be a wash whether they're better or not on a, a drug like Ativan. In the long term, there is some research suggesting that uh, chronic use of a benzodiazepine-type drug accelerates cognitive decline. So I cannot say whether or not his mother should be taking Ativan, but I do think it's always a good idea before continuing that kind of drug indefinitely to look into alternative ways to help an older person with anxiety. Ideally, um, he would find a geriatrician or geriatric psychiatrist, if possible, to advise on non-benzodiazepine ways to evaluate and manage his mother's anxiety because there may be some approaches that could reduce her need for this drug, which is problematic and increases her fall risk. Now for the issue of bad breath. I was a bit surprised to read this question and the fact that the, uh, that the doctor said it was due to um, acid reflux because I hadn't come across acid reflux as a cause for bad breath. So I looked into it um, a bit and as I had initially thought, um, in most cases, bad breath is due to problems in the mouth, like dental problems and dry mouth, both of which are very common in older adults. So, so for, the, uh, for the bad breath, I would definitely encourage this family to uh, ask some extra questions about it. In uptodate.com, which is a very widely used clinical reference, it said, and I quote, bad breath almost never arises from the esophagus, stomach, or intestines. So if the bad breath is bothersome and is an issue, I would definitely encourage um, looking into an oral and dental exam. And then if the doctors have said bad breath is the main justification for treating stomach acid with acid-reducing medication, it might be worth considering a second opinion or doing just a little extra learning about what's going on and asking extra questions. Okay, next question, and this is the last one that I'm going to do in this episode, which has already run a bit longer than most of my episodes. What do I do when my 89-year-old non-demented father won't leave the house? He has mild cognitive impairment and denies any agoraphobia. He is pretty healthy and walks very well with a walker. He's been on Lexapro low dose for 10 days now, and he hasn't left the house since August. He has a good appetite. I don't want to force an 89-year-old person. Thank you. I don't know exactly what is the right thing to do for this particular older person, but um, here's my approach for this type of difficult situation. So this is a situation in which we have a worrisome behavior, in this case, refusing to leave the house, and an older person who is resistant to changing this behavior and concerned uh, family. My approach is that I start off by trying to understand what are the underlying issues driving the worrisome behavior in the older person. And so to do this, I usually try to spend some time understanding the older person's perspective on the issue and their concerns. And so you want to talk to the older person, ideally sounding as non-judgmental as possible to kind of understand how they feel and why they're doing uh, what they're doing. 
And it's important to consider the fact that they may have feelings or concerns that they'll be reluctant to admit to, like a fear of falling or maybe a fear of being seen as weaker by their neighbors. Or sometimes people have some fears or beliefs that are irrational or delusional, uh, especially if they're in the earliest stages of um, something like Alzheimer's. They can have some paranoias or false beliefs. And if people have reacted like they're crazy, they may not feel very comfortable expressing those unless you're really supportive and, and let it come out. And whether it's a fear or, or concern grounded in reality or not is, is not relevant at this point. The idea is to really understand like, how's it looking from the older person's perspective? And that's both to provide some insight into what might be the underlying cause of the behavior and to give you some ideas on what might be a constructive strategy to address the behavior. Once I've made a list of what's causing or might be causing the issue, then we work together to consider our options for treating or mitigating the causes. And again, uh, in this case, the, the writer said that his father has mild cognitive impairment. If somebody told me that, I would still want to double check and make sure that it's not actually more substantial cognitive impairment because I've certainly encountered families who've underestimated the degree of impairment that an older parent might have. And if the person really is more impaired, that's important to know uh, because you have to consider their capacity to make the decision. And even if you think they don't have capacity to make the decision, meaning you don't think they have the insight and understanding to understand the decision and the consequence of the decision, you still can't necessarily make people do things. But, uh, but certainly understanding sort of the, the person's mental capacities is important because you want to know whether you're facing somebody who has the mental capacity to decide something and is deciding something you disagree with versus somebody who doesn't have the capacity. And, and in that case, you can't necessarily make them do something, but, but it still can be uh, approached a little bit differently. So after considering the cognitive capabilities of the person and whether or not it seems like they have the mental capacity to be making the decision that they're making, we consider our options for addressing or mitigating the situation. And basically every course of action has pros and cons, including deciding to let a suboptimal behavior, like not leaving the house, continue. I mean, that, I don't know the particular of the situations, but generally it's isolating to stay home. People don't get enough exercise and usually it's not great for their long-term health. So those are the downsides of allowing it to continue. On the other hand, by pushing somebody to, to leave the house if they don't want to, you can provoke a lot of stress and uh, anxiety and you may not even be ethically or legally in the right to do so depending on the, the person's mental abilities and, and the circumstances. So we basically sort of consider the different options and consider the pros and cons, and then we try to move forward. In this case, the person has been on Lexapro for 10 days. That's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, also known as an SSRI. It's often used to treat anxiety or depression in older adults. Those medications do take uh, weeks to show an effect, so it's only been 10 days, so it's possible that with a little bit more time, it'll take an effect, but, but mostly, I, you know, I would hope that whoever prescribed that medication was really thoughtful in evaluating why this older man is not leaving the house and has, um, you know, proposed a potential cause that should be treatable with this medication, and it's important to make sure that doctor follows up on how that medication is working because often I see older adults who are put on an SSRI and then everybody forgets about it. 
and their symptom or problem doesn't necessarily get better. Nobody ever gets around to checking on it and adjusting the medication. So you always want to make sure that a chronic problem like this has been followed up on. And don't assume that doctors will follow up on it because it's just really easy for things to fall through the cracks. So lastly for this person, and this is really the theme, I think, of a lot of my answers. If you are the adult child of an older person and you're encountering any kind of struggles or challenges in helping your aging parents, I would encourage you to make the find the time and the effort to cultivate your own skills of resilience and acceptance. Because um, for many families, the challenges go on for years. They're and they're often quite quite hard. And I think taking certain steps can make things better and easier, both for you as family caregivers and for your parents. But it's often it often the challenges often go on for for months or years and you you want to equip yourself for that and it should pay off down the line in better mental health and physical health for you as a family caregiver and often might enable you to be more helpful and of a more constructive source of support to your older parent and with that i'm going to wrap up this episode of better health while aging i want to thank the people who sent me their questions and i hope the answers were at least a little helpful If you've been listening and you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. And I'll also be posting links to some of the resources I mentioned in the episode on the show notes page. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregiving to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you for listening. In a future episode, I'll address some of the other health and aging questions that were submitted. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.